0: Welcome to Exploring Filipino Kitchens. I'm your host, Nastasha Allard. This episode, we're exploring the effects of American occupation on Filipino food culture. Because even though, you know, a lot of people talk about Filipino food in America today, that's not the angle I'm interested in. Instead, what I wanted to know was... How are the foods that I grew up with as a middle-class kid in 1990's Metro Manila, how much were they really influenced by American culture? And yeah, this question totally matters today, because this weekend, it's April 2018 now, Toronto's very own Jollibee franchise is opening, and people are going nuts. Like, enough to line up overnight in a plaza on the outskirts of town in what's technically still the tail end of winter in Canada. What can I say? People want their chicken joy. And they aren't just nostalgic Filipinos. Some of them are genuinely curious to see what the fuss is all about from all those super cheesy but totally delightful commercials on YouTube about people who fall in love with Jollibee. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, Google Jollibee commercial and see for yourself. So, how exactly did so many Filipinos come to love this very American food? Even if most of us have particular idea about the actual origins of fried chicken. It's those same Filipinos who uprooted their lives and moved all the way to North America. At the end of the day, they're gonna go out of their way for a couple deep-fried pieces of chicken from home. And that connection that we establish and associate with certain foods is what totally piques my interest. Because before today's young Filipino Americans and Canadians started reinterpreting that fried chicken and things like the Spam that they remember and loved from childhood, I want to go a step further back and ask, why did their parents, like the people who grew up in the Philippines in the 50s and 60s, who then immigrated in large numbers to the U.S. and Canada in the 70s, Why did eating Western, and specifically American food, mean so much to them in the first place? And as I read more about food history and culture and how that evolves over time, I started to really get that food traditions in themselves don't always have to be the things that we would normally consider traditional. In the Philippines, for example, lechon was an established food that a lot of families had for Christmas, for over 300 years during the Spanish occupation. That's a long time for a particular food tradition to take hold, and really become ingrained into society. But then. It's the sweet American ham and that fascination with perfectly round slices of pineapples and cherries on top. They became the norm much later. And for me, that's what I consider traditional Christmas food, having grown up in the 90s. I think it's perfectly legit to call it that. Our guest today is Rene Alexander Orquiza, a professor based in Rhode Island whose research and teaching interests focus on 20th century American history, Philippine American history, and immigration history. Professor Orquiza has done a lot of research in his field, and he's got some fascinating stories to share with us today. It'll plant an entirely different perspective in your head, or at least it did for me about the breadth and depth of American influence into the lives of everyday Filipinos across multiple generations. Hopefully, you'll come out the other end with even more questions about why we eat what we eat. Let's get into our interview with Professor Alex Arquiza.
1: originally from the Bay Area. I grew up in San Jose, California. And my mom and dad both immigrated uh, in the early 1970s. My dad is from uh, Nueve Siha. My mom is from uh, local Sur. And they met here as like the post-1965 immigration class of Filipinos. They're, they're both physicians. And I, I grew up in, in I, I think the statistic is the third most populous Filipino region in the country. So there's like the, the third most amount of Filipino-Americans are actually in the San Francisco Bay Area. So I grew up with, though I didn't go back to the Philippines as much as I wanted, like we went back three times when I was a kid. My parents said that the one thing that they were going to instill in us uh, is a is a full knowledge and understanding and appreciation for Filipino food. Because that was the most tangible way of seeing culture in their eyes. So when I graduated from college, I, I went to UC Berkeley, stayed in the Bay Area. I'd left to go do work uh, at the master's level in the UK and there was no Filipino food there. So like unbeknownst to me, like as almost a visceral reaction at like the age of 23, I'm trying <laughs> to cook Filipino food abroad and just like asking um, e- emailing my mom literally for, for recipes and she'd send me the, the home recipes, came back from that uh, worked back in San Francisco in the chef world and started to wonder why there weren't any Filipino restaurants in large numbers considering the fact that we were like the second largest immigrant group behind the Chinese in San Francisco. Okay. So uh, because I was a nerd uh, and, and like a budding historian, uh, I, I figured that the answer was actually in history. And that's led me to the research interest that I have now, which is the Americanization of Filipino cuisine between 1898 and 1946 and the change in the mentality So that Filipinos during the better part of two or three generations were discouraged from cooking Filipino food.
0: Wow. What a way to set up the story. As I was reviewing some of the papers and the publications that you've contributed to, I guess to put it in my words, it's a way to understand how I understand Filipino food because... I grew up in the Philippines and uh, didn't migrate to, to Canada until I was 19 and so, you know, my childhood was full of like hot dogs and macaroni salad and all that, but similarly I find that one of the most effective ways that I've found recently of trying to better understand my relationship and connection with food is to understand what happened prior to my generation. So from from UC Berkeley, did you pursue a history degree from there and then do more research?
1: Uh, while I was in college, I, I double majored. I was in history and American studies. And American studies is basically, is basically a hodgepodge of sociology, anthropology and history. Okay. And I, I wrote my senior thesis then on uh, uh, immigrant entrepreneurship uh, entrepreneurism uh, from the like post 1986, after the Refugee Acts uh, specifically uh, targeting Southeast Asians, Cambodians, Laotians, uh, uh, Vietnamese, and from that I started to realize that there was a there was a very similar story about migration and the start and uh, and the start of businesses and the production of identity and commodification of identity for Southeast Asian immigrants in the United States after World War II. So, like even though I wasn't specifically focused on Filipino studies. Uh, or Philippine studies in undergrad, like the the skills were there and like the the curiosity was there. And when I came back uh, from from my master's degree in the UK, I realized that the the biggest historical question I wanted to ask had to do with the American period in the Philippines. Just because there wasn't there wasn't a lot of scholarship that I found really convincing that dealt with the cultural studies in the Philippines. Like there's a lot of stuff on economics. There's a whole bunch of stuff on democratization and citizenship but there's nothing on like the ground level stuff, which is food, because everyone had to experience some kind of push to eat like, to eat like Americans during that time period. So yeah. I, I, I wrote my application for grad school on that project, and then by my second year, I was able to get funding uh, to live in the Philippines for two years. So I, I went uh, over as a, as a uh, I got a Fulbright scholarship in the US, uh, and I was based in Manila, in, uh, in Quezon City at UP. And I went to all the UP campuses, uh, going to their uh, uh, research libraries, just asking them to find me like just to read old stuff from 1898 to 1946 that had anything to do with food. And it was really, really fascinating looking through these college syllabi uh, and seeing that by 1920, 1930, there's a whole bunch of classes that are just on the purchase of American appliances, uh, uh, nutritional science and home economics that use textbooks out of New York and Boston. Uh, The the first Filipino textbook on Filipino cuisine that actually looks at nutritional studies doesn't come out until after independence in 1946, So it comes out in 1953. It was clear to me that there was an intention to get Filipinos to eat differently.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And uh, it really falls into that period of time where you know nutrition studies was was starting to become a thing in the western world and uh, obviously has trickled down into uh into the Philippines where uh, the Americans were based at the time and i'm just kind of imagining you going through like the the libraries and and all these places and being able to see firsthand those documents and what were some of the things that stuck with you through that period of like being able to go firsthand to those libraries and, and check out those resources.
1: It, it, it came down to like five different groups of sources that, uh, and like old documents that, that are telling the story. Uh, the first thing was menus. And oddly enough, the largest menu connection that, uh, collection that I found that, that was helpful for this came out of the New York Public Library uh, system. Uh, there, there's a large menu collection called The Menu Collection uh, on 42nd and, and 5th. The collection there had a whole bunch of uh, menus from old banquets and, and business transaction events, like the Manila Merchants Association would hold something. And inside of there, you get the list of all the industrialists that are coming in from the United States. All the ilustrado that have now switched their allegiances to Americans uh, alongside them. And for, because they wanted to, because they recognized that the traditional power structure was what still spoke Spanish. Uh, the language, the the menu was oftentimes in English and Spanish, but never in Tagalog. So those are the kinds of things that stuck out to me that uh, there was a pitch. There was like that was like targeting the, the upper class. Then when you go into like the schools syllabi, uh, you you see this pitch towards the Filipino non-elites because uh, it's written uh, inside of a school grammar textbook that everyone had to study in the fourth grade. You know, like everyone had to go to an American public school until sixth grade, and for three of those years, they were studying nutritional science or home economics or agricultural science. So food was the way of, of uh, either introducing uh, Filipino commodities into a global trade or getting Filipinos uh, to, to start to think like Americans about the, the nutrition that they, that they put into their bodies. There's also a a set of of documents that are uh, early impressions of the Philippines. So American missionaries arriving in the early 1900s. Like,
0: for example,
1: the Thomasites,
0: who, as Alex describes, because they were teachers, also ended up documenting what life was like in the Philippines in the early 1900s. And if you are not sure who the Thomasites are, that's totally fine. Even I didn't know much about them, despite the fact that I spent most of my childhood living with two aunts who were high school and college educators. The Thomasites were a group of about 500 teachers who were sent to the Philippines by the U.S. government on a ship called the U.S. Thomas, hence the name. These folks were basically the pioneers who shaped the Philippine education system into what it is today. And although formal schools had long existed in the Philippines prior to the Americans arriving, it was the Thomasites who made public schooling accessible to everyday Filipinos by the turn of the century. Because remember that while the University of Santo Tomas had been teaching Filipino and Spanish elite since the 1600s, most Filipinos had no way or financial means to receive that kind of education. And of course, the Thomasites taught in English, setting the stage to make Filipinos the largest English-speaking population in Asia. Truthfully, they were pretty progressive for their time.
1: And because they're coming up in this time, as you alluded, uh, the nutritional science movements and this push towards home economics, all of them are trained in places like Cornell or uh, UC Berkeley, uh, and they all took the same curriculum using the same textbook.
0: And Professor Orquiza shares, even the same cookbooks, like the Boston Cooking School cookbook written by Fanny Farmer, which became the Bible for all American home economists of the time, including teachers, because of the way that it approached diet and nutrition alongside standardized measurements. So by the time the Thomasites, who all learned how to cook from Fanny Farmer, came to the Philippines, Alex says that we see those recipes...
1: Made in the early 1890s, to the early 1900s translated over and reproduced in American cookbooks coming out of Manila from missionary societies, from Catholic charities. Those exact same recipes that were made here in New England are being reproduced in the Philippines uh, as the apogee of American consumerism or, or the new Filipino consumerism. So it's, it's stuff like that. Like when you, when you see the hard evidence, of like 50 years, like a steady stream of of stuff that's coming out from the Bureau of Printing that's run by the Americans in, in the in the 1900s. You really see like the extent to which this was planned to reach all levels of society in the Philippines. And you can see it anywhere you go in the country. Any of the UP campuses, like you see it in, in UP Baguio, like that one's obvious because that's the the winter resort. But then you go down to like UP Iloilo in like in the Central Visayas. And uh, it's not just at that university, but it's in all the other uh, Catholic universities that are in town as well. Like their, their uh, uh, curriculum is, is reflecting the same changes. It, it was mostly the extent to which this is spreading, not just in schools, but in menus, uh, in hotels, and pitches about the Philippines and travel guides that are getting people to invest in the Philippines and saying, it's fine, you'll find Western food here. You know, like it's, it's an American imperial city, but there's French food and there's American food uh, that really doing.
0: paint such a vivid picture of what like how people had learned to cook from that time and I guess what's what's really interesting to me too is uh thinking of it from the perspective that you know like in in the United States for example there's a lot of documentation about early cookbooks that were published Fanny Farmer for example And a lot of uh, people like housewives at the time who were really learning to expand their their culinary uh, skill set and vocabulary from it. And in the Philippines, I guess, too, it it was also a confluence of the right time because during the American occupation, then you'd have the advent of all of these uh, printed materials being distributed through the school system or, uh, you know, possibly through what I was thinking more was like... um, Product advertisements, I guess uh you you probably came across those as well, and it's just you're right that distribution of knowledge as it kind of trickles down into like the majority of the population that's probably one of the the biggest things too like with, with the American period uh,
1: yeah, I mean admin are definitely a part of this as you're saying, like the the pitches through through advertisements and like Del Monte is, is the one that, that, that jumps out to me. There's an ad that I saw from NYY uh, from like the 1930s, which was like the, the version of Time Magazine in the Philippines. It's an advertisement for Del Monte peaches and Del Monte canned fruit that is targeting a Filipino audience because it's in Tagalog. Uh, uh, it it has all the the marks that we know for Bas, for Pasco. Like this is a Christmas time advertisement. <laughs> And they, they set it not in the middle of like, industrialized, modernized Manila, uh, but they put it inside of like, a Baha'i Kubo. So you know that they're, they're, they're trying to, to reach like, not only uh, a broad reading audience in Tagalog, but appealing to this rural uh, mentality or idol, like this romanticism of, of what the Philippine agriculture uh, and, and uh, countryside looks like. Uh, and that's just like one of multiple country, uh, companies that are advertising the Philippines from the United States. And also the, the largest industry that's doing this, and it's probably the earliest one to do this, uh, is the canned milk industry. And they're coming yeah. out of places like Switzerland, UK, and New York City. Uh, and all of them are, are pitching Western canned milk as cleaner, safer, and more nutritious than Carabao milk or coconut milk or and any of the native sources
0: it's such a deep topic to learn because i feel like every time you you come up with a new topic that you'd like to that you have a question about like you can go down this rabbit hole
1: <laughs> yeah no i spent the better part of three weeks just trying to trace down the history of san miguel and like advertising in san miguel because that's pretty fascinating as well it's a filipino company that was founded by a royal charter from the spanish government that is making their own advertising but it's modeled on the advertising of Pepsi and Coca Cola. So you see these fascinating ads from the 1920s and the 1930s that, that presents someone that looks like the, straight out of central casting from the great Gatsby, but she's got black hair. And the, the pitch isn't just that it's glamorous, it's also that it's nutritious. Uh, and the, the most fascinating one that I found of that is it's, it's the perfect little drink for new mothers, because not only will you be replenished. But through uh, breastfeeding your children after you drank beer, they will also be replenished by San Miguel beer.
0: Just imagine trying to pitch that today. I love old ads. They're like a time capsule.
1: But yeah, like San Miguel is run like a cartel. Like I couldn't get in there unless... Uh, I, the only reason why I was able to get in there is I knew someone who knew someone because it's the Philippines. I basically had to tell them that I was telling, like, an objective history as opposed to, like, I'm trying to read critically about, like, the, the influence of materialism in the Philippines.
0: <laughs> you got to do what you can, right? It's it's about documenting it. And um, I guess uh, just to kind of dial it back a little bit, like, with your, like, love of research, because you've kind of alluded to it already, how interested you were in understanding just the extent to which all of this has affected how Filipinos like eat today. At the time, while you were doing research in the Philippines and you would, you know, talk about your work with with other Filipinos, like perhaps at the UP libraries you visited, like, what was the reaction you got from people when you told them, you know, I'm I'm doing research on uh, this period of time and how it affected how Filipinos ate? Right,
1: right, no, that's a great question. And uh, there are two things. Uh, The first thing that I noticed was whenever I said I was studying like the history of Filipino food, they always assumed that I was talking about something between like 1521 and 1896. And they're always expecting that I was talking about the Spanish and Hispanicization of Filipino cuisine. So when I would tell them that I was working on American food, they're like, oh, so you're looking at hot dogs and ketchup, you know, <laughs> hot dog, ketchup, and Coca-Cola. and And I would have to like say like, well, partly, <laughs> like that's a that's a fun way of describing it. But then I would tell them the, the 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 ideas that I was that I was actually engaging with, and then the full-on critical social history of the 1970s that came out of the UP uh, would come back at me, which was wonderful because Americans don't learn that at all, right? Like, yes, the average American about the Philippines, they will tell you, oh, my dad served or my grandfather served in the war there, right? Like, they don't realize that they were actually an American colony from 1899, 1898 to 1946. So, like, that has been really, really invigorating because it, it, it's, it's, it's a huge hole in my own knowledge, despite the fact that I grew up in the United States and had filand parents. You know, like, it, it's something that, that I bring into my own work now, is now, that I'm, now that I'm teaching as a professor. Like, this is an untold story, uh, untold story in American history, and the easiest way to tell it is through food. No, people get bogged down in like the English as the common language or uh, 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 like what exactly is the switch in the illustrado uh, as they become collaborationists in, the, in American politics. Like it's not the same thing as it's saying like everyone was affected by food.
0: Absolutely. I do agree as well. I think uh, that. Talking about food, well, especially like with being able to reach much wider audiences with with food blogs and social media, and you're just increasing the audience of people who are potentially interested in in a particular subject about food. Um, And you're right, it's because it's accessible. One thing that I find really interesting with approaching food studies in this way and thinking about food as a way to... Uh, give context to what's happening in a particular region socially and economically and culturally at a particular time is that you can derive all of this information from the foods that were prepared and served uh, like during that period and with that in the Philippines too you really see just how widespread it was and I guess the the spreading of the ideas about nutrition and like cleanliness and uh one of the early sources that I found online were publications that were produced by American sources uh, that had like Bureau of Plant Industry Manila, 1902 at like the bottom of the PDFs, and that's where I was like, "Well okay, like this is all great, and it's great that I can find this like publicly accessible online through a free domain, but like where's the other stuff? like I, I really wanted to find out more.. if i'm talking to someone and i'm kind of explaining why uh why they need to care or why they should care about you know what this what this history has done to the way that filipinos eat now Um, again based on the generation that you're in it's like if you say filipino food like one of the things that will automatically come to your mind is like spam and like i guess all of this is part of a general questioning or trying to address the question of, well, Filipino food is not just that. A big part of it is the, the American influence and like how it's affected so many families over a certain generation to think that that's what they should be doing and what they should be cooking. You mentioned earlier, I know you're working on a research paper right now. Could you share some of the topics that you're working on there? Like, does it address kind of some of the questions I alluded
1: to? <laughs> yeah, the, the, the how is it applicable to present day and and like how does the how does the history affect the, the, the present? There's a couple of different ways that you could address it. The first thing is like the mentality right? if if our grandparents and our parents were of a generation uh, that was told that the most effective way to, to eat and the most effective way to, to cook wasn't necessarily stuff from their home province then that automatically shifts the thinking into not only is the food not good enough but maybe the everyday ways of life the behaviors of etiquette uh, the ways that we clean and the ways that we organize a kitchen you know like maybe we should be shifting towards a different uh, better way of thinking which is you know the definition of a colonial mentality so like it's 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 it affects, the. it's an expression of the colonial mentality from the very bottom up, you know, from like everyday life. The other thing that, that I think is important to, uh, to connect the past with the present is the awareness of just how how thorough this was, is missing in the telling of the American period in the Philippines because we know the, the long story about how uh, A for Apple as opposed, for, as opposed to Manzana is, is like, you know, like the, the English thing. And we know about the, the, the push to create schools that are uh, an expansion on the public school system from the Spanish, but we don't know exactly what classes they were teaching that were different. And that curriculum was based on a curriculum that was made here in the United States, as opposed to something that was thought of specifically for the Philippines. And in order to catch up and make it into a Filipino curriculum, you, it's the better part of the first 20 years of Philippine independence. We don't really have like Filipino domestic science until the 1960s. And you think about like, you know, 60 years, there's like that sixty year gap of what they were spreading as misinformation. Uh, that, that became regular uh, standard ways of thinking. And the, the third thing, and this is one that, that's only really hit me uh, uh, after living in the Philippines. What's considered Filipino food outside of the Philippines is basically stuff that's from the northern part of the country. Like if you're from Luzon and you had means uh, after the 1960s, uh, then you immigrated, right? Uh, and, and not as many people are immigrating from the south and certainly not as many people are immigrating out of, out of Mindanao. So just to disabuse the national uh, definition of Filipino cuisine, it is helpful to know that the Filipino cuisine that was spread throughout the world is basically from like five provinces. And uh, like that, that, that realization that you could actually embrace regional cuisine in the Philippines doesn't happen during the American period at all. You know, I think it, you can make the argument only really happens in the 1980s and the 1990s. And I, I think knowing that, knowing that like there was a mentality that precluded that from happening Whereas here in, in like the United States, uh, there's Midwestern cookery, there's Southern cookery, there's Western cookery, like all that is embraced uh, in the definition of American cuisine in the 1920s and 1930s. Like at the same time, they're not allowing it to happen in, in the only American colony in Asia. And I I think that is a fascinating way of thinking about it. So
0: I'm gonna go slightly a, a little bit off topic here again, because you mentioned regionality and I had the wonderful pleasure of being able to talk with Amy Bessa And uh, there was a there was a really fun anecdote that stuck in my mind, too, while I was speaking with her. Um, So she was saying that she was uh, talking with Sidney Mintz and uh, they were talking about regionality. He was basically talking about how, you know, country cuisines or like national cuisines are pretty much like a Western construct, because prior to. Western colonization of a lot of Asian countries for example like it's very regional right and it's the same thing with the Philippines you've got so many different regions uh, bounded by the geography of it and um like, I personally kind of tend to stray away from, like, all these online arguments about what defines Filipino food. Because then, like, that's that's not the full extent of the conversation, because you're right. A lot of the early migrants to North America, and in the U.S. in particular, were from a specific region. If your argument is based solely on that, you're excluding the other people who are from the southern provinces who do have a lot to say. And, uh, yeah, so, so regionality for sure uh, plays into that in some of the research that you did. Did you ever get to, did you ever get to Mindanao? Like, uh, to a UP campus in Mindanao?
1: I was lucky enough to be a, a guest at Marawi State University. I, I met some people in Manila at the Fulbright office who were also uh, professors there. And I, I told them that, that I'd only been uh, to de Oro. And they're like, no, you haven't been far uh, south enough. So they, they, they met me at CDO and we like drove all the way in there. And my god like the the, i've never seen filipino food like that right like everything has turmeric it's closer to indonesian than it is filipino or like filipino as we know it right there uh the the amount of galangal that's used there but like it's not called galangal it's something else uh like it's those kinds of things that make you realize just how different uh the other part of the philippines that doesn't contribute uh the large numbers of immigrants to north america uh, as as the areas in the sun, like that, that's when you start to see that there's difference.
0: I can only imagine the complexity of flavors in that region's foods, that punchy, layered, beautifully melded harmony of flavors that many people in the Mindanao region enjoy and often eat
1: to this day. I, I just remember the the other thing that uh, that is important to to studying the the history at least like not not only of the American period, but in the long spectrum of things, Uh, it contextualizes the changes that have happened since 1946 as well. Because the overseas foreign worker, the OFW population that's bringing influences back from Dubai and from UAE, from Canada, from the United States, uh, uh, they add to this larger matrix of what Filipino cuisine has been, not only since uh, the 20th century, but going back to like the first interactions with the Chinese in the 10th century.
0: one of the other topics I'd like to explore is Filipino restaurants, like not Filipino restaurants in North America, but how restaurants in the Philippines had evolved over time. Um, And, you know, like traditionally the Philippines is a very home-based cuisine. Like there's the, the, the general communal gathering of people tends to happen during fiestas and like big celebrations like that kind of thing but like the actual idea of going to a restaurant to sit down and pay like also probably didn't i haven't done very much research on this but probably evolved in the same time period so i'm wondering like uh in in some of uh your research was there something about restaurants that kind of stuck out or like in some of the menus that you were looking at, were there some from like the Manila hotel that kind of gave you a better picture of what restaurants were like then?
1: There's a lot of examples of this, but the one that jumps out to me right now and I have to check on the, I'd double check on the source in the, in the year. Uh, but there's a, uh, a restaurant review that came out of a, a magazine based in Manila and this, this restaurant reviewer, he himself was a uh, pensionado who went out to Wisconsin, took a degree in economics, I think, uh, a master's degree, came back and was reviewing a Filipino restaurant and denigrating and marking it down because it didn't mark, uh, because it didn't live up to the expectations that he had witnessed in his tears in, in, in Wisconsin. So it was almost like he was giddy and ready to show off that he'd seen a Western way of restaurant presentation and like, and critiquing his like people from the town in which he's from because they didn't know something that he did. And it was almost like he was like rubbing it in their faces. Like, upset, you know? You can't fault people for not knowing these things, you know? And uh, uh, a textbook doesn't convey the same experience as going to a place, right? He was lucky enough because he was from the right families to go to this place and experience what like fine dining in Milwaukee was like, <laughs> but, uh, uh, there's other examples of this, of uh, uh, the, the transportation of, of, of Western culinary techniques and, and like the layout of a restaurant or like a, a dining space in Manila hotel that's made up by uh, architects from the United States and, uh, and, and cooks from the United States. And uh, nowhere on there will you find like a marker that it's Filipino, except for the fact that they're using mangoes.
0: So this isn't news, but now we've got proof that back then, and up until today, restaurant reviews have a trickle-down effect on how the food culture in a particular region develops. And then there's travel guides.
1: Things like the it's like the Beidecker Guide or um, Thomas Cook. So the Cook Guides, they still exist today. Uh, they would list the restaurants that were available uh, uh, to eat at in, in primarily Manila and Baguio. The restaurants that they listed there, out of, out of a list of 10, one of them would be traditional Filipino and the rest of them would all be Western cuisine or Chinese. Uh, and it's a pattern that is not only in the cookbooks, but it's also in, in the menus from restaurants as well.
0: And one particular example that Alex comes back to are those menus that he came across from the restaurant at the Manila Hotel. This was a big deal because back then, the Manila Hotel was this grand hotel that everyone who visited Manila just had to stay in. Naturally, they kept a lot of their documents and old menu cards. It had, he
1: says, Uh, a dinner that that featured a whole bunch of stuff out of Classical French cuisine, and then like a mango frappe, just to remind you that you're in the Philippines.
0: One other thing he learned from the restaurant menus, which really were basically printed copies of that evening's program of events, was how dinner at the hotel really meant dinner and a show. Because remember, this was the 1920s, and these Americans who traveled all the way to Manila, they pretty much expected some type of entertainment along with their meals because journeying to the Philippines was still this kind of exotic thing that some Americans could afford to do. Often, this kind of entertainment involved Filipino folk singers that were hired by the Manila Hotel to perform things like a kundiman. The kundiman is a genre of traditional Tagalog love songs, and those Tagalog singers who were permitted to sing them at the hotel for American guests they could really only do that once every night. And so along with this Western food that they served at the buffet, guests were serenaded with music that was meant to set the mood, but it was from a different tropical paradise.
1: Uh, they import in a bunch of hula singers and hula dancers from Hawaii and put Hawaii at a higher part on the hierarchy of places that the Americans are controlling in the Pacific than the place in which they're performing the music so like hawaii was perceived as better than the Philippines at that time period and you see it through through the way that they're performing music at a restaurant in manila so that stuff really really strikes me because it's not just the food but it's also the food culture and the surrounding uh, uh etiquette and accoutrements and you know the the the, the ambiance there uh they're, they're trying to remind you that you're not in manila that that that, that you can be transported to honolulu instead of manila
0: Finally, one other thing that Alex found a lot of were these travel memoirs, like some that were written by the Thomasites, and some pretty influential people from that period.
1: There's a, there's a genre of a cookbook, or not cookbook, a travel memoir that's popular in the 20th century that's just like the well-to-do American making his or her way from San Francisco to Yokohama. It was like stop number five of seven, right? So, they would talk about uh, Honolulu, they would talk about Australia, they would talk about Japan, they'd talk about Hong Kong, Manila is thrown in there, and then by the end, they arrive in, in Yokohama. And the comparison was always with the Hawaiians, just because I think that was the, the land destination that was like a week before they arrived in Manila. This is coming out in lots of different ways, it's not just uh, memoirs from, from school teachers and memoirs from well-to-do Americans. It's also coming from like the wife of the governor general of the Philippines. So right. Helen Huron Taft, the wife of William Howard Taft. writes a 300 page book on what it was like to live in the Philippines for five years. And about a third of it is is dedicated to, to the foods that she encountered there. Probably, probably not, maybe a tenth, 15, like 15% of it. And they're not crazy, they're, they're not comfortable accounts to read she's reading it through the lens of someone that believes in phrenology and like the racial hierarchies where where the Philippines is or Filipino is somewhere around that of an African-american and that super racist time so uh, because of that the the reading the the descriptions that she has of eating outside of this western bubble in Manila make for really really like uncomfortable uh, reading because she says that they're just not civilized to understand that they're eating incorrectly or Uh, That those that are outside of Manila are just mimicking, apparently we're very good mimickers, she uses that word a lot, that they're just mimicking the behavior that they've seen from the Spanish but they're not doing as well as the Spanish.
0: So as a historian when you see these types of of resources they present their value to you because as as skewed as they may be in the way that they're written by the person at the time like you, I know you you have to have a certain you have to put on a certain lens while you're reading it in order to interpret it from a more like unbiased like standpoint but what i guess as a general question how would you describe the value that these types of, of articles and resources from the wives of governor generals of that past, like even, even if they are obviously written in that particular voice and need a bit of understanding from the researchers' part to properly interpret, like how would you, how would you regard the value of these, um, you know, and your work as having to interpret these to, to other people?
1: I wouldn't say that they're exceptional. Like, I would say that if anything they're representative of the large number of people that are coming into the Philippines from the United States at this time, like William Howard Taft uh, famously said that he only wanted guys from Yale and Harvard to administer the Philippines. So if, if he and his wife are of that class, you know, like the like Northeastern intellectuals that are recruiting other people to administrate, you could see the same line of thinking and a lot of the other memoirs are written by the people that he recruits. And uh, you you see the same line of thinking in the people that are teaching in, in provincial schools outside of Manila. Uh, uh, one of the first pieces of evidence that I found was a, uh, a memoir of a guy uh, who went to school at Stanford, but then was, was teaching in, I want to say it was uh, Gagayan. And it, it's nothing but like, wow, these people can't learn anything. Wow, like <laughs> this is so challenging because they're, They just mimic as opposed to have original thought. He actually makes like a list of like Filipino trades versus Western trades. This is the first wave of people that are coming in to teach Filipinos. And even if there is a switch, even if that switch happens, like say in 1925 after the Monroe Commission, which is the big reform on Filipino education, for the better part of one generation, the policymakers that are shaping how people think and perceive themselves that are writing these textbooks are writing this not just about food but about philippine society in general and i think that, like it is very very important to understand like the way that we read uh, uh and critique textbooks today in the united states or in north america and uh, canada or anywhere in 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 uh, like the anglophile world like it's been under uh, like the the reinterpretation of, of western histories is a is a push button issue now and it should have been uh, and, and, like, the, the, the same methodologies be, are, are being applied to a negative extent uh, towards Filipino readership in, in the early 1900s. And it, it affects the writing of Filipino history up until the 1970s, to be honest. So, like, the, the history of the Filipino people by Teodoro Agoncillo, you know, like, he, there was a big backlash against it in the 1970s. But he's only writing out of the tradition that was established by the American historical writers in the 1900s, which are the same people that are writing about food in such detrimental ways. Yeah, the, like when I when I realized just what the implications were of getting people to stop eating mangoes and start eating canned peaches, it really started to fuck with my head. It was like, holy yeah. crap! Like my grandparents, my parents make so much more sense now. You know.
0: <laughs> Putting it in a North American context, if you go to you know a, a big part of this renaissance of um, Filipino chefs really becoming a lot more comfortable with the techniques that were used in a lot of traditional Filipino cooking and um, really being open to uh, the food ways of um, preserving food and food production and using ingredients that, that were traditionally used in a lot of Filipino food. Um, it's, it's because of that generation kind of branching out to more than the stuff that they were usually served at home growing up, which was served to them by their parents who had grown up in this particular region in this particular time. So I guess it's, I guess kind of in a as a, as a closing thought, like what what can you share about like the cyclical nature of like this history and and given the given the work that you're doing and the research you've taken upon, like what person what lessons. Could you share with us that kind of really illustrate that fact that this is this is a cyclical process?
1: Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna borrow from Mati Amy on this actually because her her response to this is the best one that I've heard. Um, we know that that we live in a in a culinary tradition and a, a mentality of eating, especially in North America, that 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 favors specifically French classical cuisine. And there's no reason why, as Filipinos, we can't hold our cuisine up to the same high standards, high standards, and and actually introduce people to the domestic cuisine that that all of us know, which we like to consider like the greatest secret in culinary in the culinary world. Right? Filipino food's awesome, and I'm really heartened by the fact that people that are our age and are in their 20s and their 30s, like early people in the game. And I used to work in restaurants, so this is why it's so exciting to me. They—they uh, they are like the people that we grew up with, that are showing people, uh, showing the dining public just what is possible from just a small region and a small uh, 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 experience that they have as, as Filipinos abroad. Because again, it's you know 7,107 islands, right? So you can you could choose to profile any different kind of regionality of Filipino cuisine in a way that was very popular in the 1960s in the United States, when every single region of France and every single wine region in France was profiled with one magazine issue yeah. from something like Gourmet. And, and I, I, I honestly believe, I honestly believe there's, there's no reason why that can't be going on for other Southeast Asian cuisines, not only national cuisines, but regional cuisines throughout Thailand, which is the one that's gotten way too much uh, uh, coverage considering the, the size of the population that's here. Uh, Filipino, like the, the second largest Asian American immigrant group in the United States behind Chinese, Again, like the the differences between cuisine in Manila and uh, and, and cuisine in Ilocos and and, and uh, cuisine in the Visayas, you know, like exactly. So, like, if you really wanted to do like a thematic restaurant on regional uh, regional cuisines of the Philippines, there's a market uh, that you wouldn't be stepping on each other's toes, which is you know like one of the ways that things can grow. Just think about like how many Italian restaurants you have that are like Umbrian cuisine and then like cuisine from Palermo, right? like uh, uh, French, like Bordeaux versus like stuff in the south of France. You'd be doing the same thing uh, with the Philippines. And like, I know the the Capotanans will say that theirs is the best, but a bunch of us will have an issue with that, you know?
0: (laughs) Okay, so I have talked about this before, but honestly, I can't wait for this. This is where the role of media and well-researched content allows us to really kind of study from the ground up today how, by any hand, that concept of Filipinos helping other Filipinos out, really at the core of it, it's people helping other people out. We see how that really comes in. And I have long dreamt of something that would allow us to connect with on-the-ground researchers in the Philippines, this, I'm going to call it, new school of people who really have this deep and personal interest in preserving food traditions and food ways, with people in the rest of the world, like the US and Canada, Australia, Dubai, the UK, everywhere. To connect us with that knowledge that they, in coordination with locals who still practice and and want to keep these traditions alive. The stuff that they work so hard to collect and preserve. There's so much power in that, and I really, really want to make that happen. So I'll have a link in the show notes for this episode for this idea that I'm thinking about. If you're interested, please get in touch with me. It's just really interesting to kind of be able to uh, talk about Filipino food and examine it from so many different perspectives because it's not just, um, like, what I've been really interested in is the topic of foodways and how I'm, like, greatly influenced by, like, the Southern Foodways Alliance and, like, the work that they do in terms of really being able to focus on a particular region and telling stories from there. Um Yeah, so that's, that's, it's a big, um, it's a big influence in approaching a very vast subject in that way, Where it's like food in itself is a big umbrella. But if you kind of like focus on history and a particular portion of this history, and like bring those those things together and kind of try to tie them in a, in a narrative. uh, Hopefully, it's something that uh, other people would would find interesting and helpful and kind of give more context to the the explosion of that right now.
1: I think it's important to get this all collated and, and curated so that it's a resource because uh, it's not just that Filipino food is becoming popular now. I think that it's it, it will be popular for a long time. And to actually nail down the conversation at this point uh, in time, not only gives us the past, but it gives us a reference point for moving forward.
0: a conversation. My sincerest thanks to Professor René Alexander-Ortiza for chatting with us about the American influence on Filipino food. If you'd like to hear more of these kinds of interviews, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. You can find Exploring Filipino Kitchens on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever you download your podcasts from. And if there is a particular topic you want to learn more about, send me a message on Facebook. I'd love to know. Find Exploring Filipino Kitchens and go ahead, click on that Like button as well. Music for this episode is by David Seste, Eric and McGill, and Podington Bear. Find their music and support artists like them at fma.org. Visit exploringfilipinokitchens.com for past episodes. At maraming salamet. Thank you for listening. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the show.